You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the Rand Corporation. I'm Deanna Lee. And I'm Emily Ashenfelder. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from Rand's latest research and commentary. It's July 24th. Um, it's ex- just extremely hard to keep them engaged, to keep them focused, um, to motivate them. Um, my daughter's easier a little bit easier to motivate she self-motivates herself and for my son it's harder to keep him just engaged he suffers from ADHD so it's he's constantly um, losing track of what he's doing there's a lot in um, and stake you know a lot of things that need to happen prior to um, kids returning to school I want to know what the real plan is like really what are what is the plan to for a safe return and how are we how are we going to keep that up because at the end of the day it takes money and LAUSD doesn't have the money you just heard Brenda Del Hierro a parent in Los Angeles Unified School District many parents across the country are feeling the same way as Del Hierro facing challenges with kids learning from home but also having serious concerns about how schools will reopen amid the coronavirus pandemic. There is a lot to talk about with this debate, which has been growing more heated by the day. This week, a teacher's union sued Florida's governor and education commissioner over an emergency order to reopen schools. And in Iowa, teachers are writing their own obituaries and sending them to the governor in protest of that state's plan. We asked a group of RAND researchers to weigh in on this issue on the RAND blog. They discussed some of the biggest concerns and considerations for reopening schools, including the different approaches for reopening, how online learning went in the spring, and ways to help disadvantaged students. Here are some highlights from the conversation. The transition to online learning in the spring revealed huge equity issues, said senior policy researcher Shelley Colbertson. At the beginning of the pandemic, about one-third of the country's 50 million K-12 students lacked access to the internet or to a device. Some states and districts are rolling out initiatives to address this issue, but it could still affect an entire generation of kids, says Colbertson. One important step would be to make sure that every child has access to a device and to the internet. This would require a lot of investment now, but it would also serve the U.S. over the longer term. And what if kids do end up back in the classroom, either part-time or full-time? How would that work? According to senior policy researcher Julia Kaufman, one problem is that there's a lack of federal standards, guidance, and funding, even as the Department of Education is pushing hard for schools to reopen. And because of that, states are adopting many different strategies, including rotating groups of students in school and using additional spaces. Andrew McEachin, who assesses different approaches to education and school design, added that there is an upside to this patchwork approach. It gives districts the flexibility to plan the school year around their local needs, including the spread of COVID-19. But on the other hand, the patchwork approach also harms the ability of policymakers, as well as researchers, to size up what's working and what isn't. Many schools are considering a hybrid approach, some in-person time in school, and some remote instruction. But does this make sense? Laura Hamilton, senior behavioral scientist and distinguished chair in learning and assessment, said that because there's so much spread of the coronavirus outside of school, 
keeping kids apart in school might not be effective. On the other hand, a recent survey that Hamilton led revealed that teachers and principals are worried about loss of hands-on learning opportunities and student engagement. Some time back in the classroom could help address that. And what about parents? What are their needs and challenges? We heard from Brenda Del Hierro earlier, and she hinted at a major problem. Although teachers are not babysitters, we have to acknowledge that schools serve a critical secondary function of providing childcare for millions of working Americans. This is an area where inequities are, again, a major issue. According to another recent RAND survey, which looked at parents' needs during school closures last spring, parents who were having difficulty covering their expenses were far more likely, sometimes by up to 50 percentage points, to say that they needed all the supports the survey asked about. Those included ways to motivate their children and more space and time to help them learn. Simply put, parents struggling financially need more help when their kids are learning from home. Clearly, many unanswered questions remain. And as the COVID-19 crisis continues to evolve, it's hard to say when decisions will be made or how they'll change between now and the start of the school year. Unfortunately, says physician policy researcher Laura Faherty, What's not driving these decisions right now is much scientific evidence. Some knowledge about COVID-19 and children is advancing, such as how transmission works and what puts kids at higher risk for serious illness. But we're not where we need to be. There's a lot more to discuss on this issue, and you can find the full conversation with our researchers on the RAND blog. COVID-19 has led to business closures, greater delinquency on securities backed by commercial mortgages, and millions of Americans working from home. All of this suggests a major decline in demand for commercial real estate, which might sound like yet another negative economic effect of the pandemic. But it could also present an opportunity, says Rand's Jason Ward. Transforming some commercial properties into residences could help meet the urgent need for affordable housing in the U.S., Take California, for example. In less than 20 years, the cost of building housing there has nearly doubled. This trend has caused even small-scale affordable housing projects to become financially infeasible before builders can even break ground. But if you use existing offices, retail spaces, or hotels that aren't being used and turn those into homes, it could help sidestep some of the factors that have made affordable housing in America such a difficult problem. When Congress passed the CARES Act earlier this year, it temporarily increased unemployment benefits by $600 a week. Now, that bonus is set to expire at the end of the month. But with tens of millions of Americans still out of work, what will lawmakers do next? Some workers have been receiving unemployment checks that are bigger than their previous paychecks were, and that appears to be a sticking point on Capitol Hill. Some have suggested simply capping unemployment benefits to address this, say at 85% of a typical worker's wage. This is possible, says Rand economist Catherine Edwards, but there are a host of reasons why it isn't practical or politically palatable. Edwards also notes that unemployment insurance is a program with incredible variation across states. One consequence of that is that the system is unfair. Two workers can earn the same amount while one receives half the benefits, and two businesses can employ the same number of workers while one pays half the tax. 
So no matter what Congress decides to do in the coming weeks, these problems will remain until the financing of the unemployment system is reformed, she says. Veterans who served after 9-11 are more likely than veterans of other eras to suffer from both substance use disorders and mental health disorders, such as PTSD or depression. But a new RAND report finds that many of these veterans don't get the help that they need. This may be because programs typically specialize in treating one type of disorder or the other. And many mental health treatment facilities often require patients to abstain from substance use. But if veterans are using substances to manage their mental health symptoms, then this becomes a barrier to treatment. What's more, veterans struggling with both issues who receive substance use treatment alone may be at risk for failing to meet their treatment goals if their mental health symptoms are not addressed. This all suggests a need to increase evidence-based treatment that addresses both problems at the same time. The authors of the report also say that it's critical to make these programs more accessible and appealing to veterans. Many Confederate statues were unveiled across the U.S. during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Just like Jim Crow laws and segregation, these monuments were an attempt to restore some of the pre-Civil War social order in the states of the Confederacy. In other words, says Rand's Thomas China, after the Civil War, the losing side gradually put up statues to figures that represented the cause of slavery and the ideology of the Confederacy. Quote, Nothing symbolizes better the continued inferior social status of African Americans in the U.S. than a statue of a wise-looking Jefferson Davis or a thoughtfully posed Robert E. Lee in a public square of an American city. Some argue that statues of Confederate generals like Lee or Stonewall Jackson are justified because they celebrate those individuals' military skill. But these generals were demonstrating that skill for a cause, the retention of slavery. And the legacy of that cause remains to this day. It may be time to take the symbolism of these statues seriously, says Shina, and understand how they play out in everyday life. For example, to an African-American soldier who leaves the Pentagon on her way to Fort Lee, first crossing the Jefferson Davis Highway. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. For more on what we covered this week, check the show notes at rand.org slash podcast. We'll see you next week. 